We'll go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We are not even two months out from our study in 1 Corinthians, so don't turn to 1 Corinthians. We're not going to be there. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians starting in chapter 7, but hopefully you guys still have a, a fresh understanding, a fresh memory of where the the Corinthian church was, the issues that they were going through, the issues that Paul was writing to, who they are, all the background. That'll be great to bring with you to today's study. Uh, you may remember from our study in 1 Corinthians that the book that we know as 1 Corinthians is actually the second letter that Paul wrote to them. He referenced uh, a former letter in that letter. And in 2 Corinthians, the book that we know as 2 Corinthians, he references another letter that uh, he wrote beforehand. And so we're going to get into that in just a moment. Um, but we are wrapping up, not wrapping up, we are in the middle of our, our series on pride. We've taken a break since 1 Corinthians, and we spent a week talking about pride in sanctification and how it is our responsibility to mortify pride and how that really is in line with what it means to be sanctified in Christ. We talked about sanctification within the, the realms of marriage and how prevalent that can be. Talked about pride in relationships that deal with uh, children, parenting and children. And so looking back at those three, just those three different areas of pride, I'm sure that we can each find uh, an area where we we need to do some work, right? Uh, we can look at our own lives and we can see how full of pride we as, as sinful fallen people are. And today we're going to be talking about pride in the church. And so we bring all of that sinfulness together. The church is just a, a it's comprised of sinful, proud individuals. And we bring all that, that pride and it is compounded here together, right? So there is no lack of opportunity for pride to take hold within the church of God. And that's what we're going to be talking about today, pride within the church. And so with all of you guys here, we definitely need to pray because we brought a, a lot of pride to the table. So let's go to Lord in prayer and we'll jump in. God, we do thank you for who you are. We thank you for the fact that you are God, that you alone are the highest, that you are the great I am, that you have given us your Holy Spirit to lead and to guide us and to sanctify us. And we do pray that uh, we wouldn't have a, a proud heart when we approach you, but that you would speak to us in your word, that we would have uh, an attitude of humility, an attitude of submission, that we would come before you with uh, a meek and mild attitude that we would come before you wanting to learn. God, we do thank you for the church. I thank you for the church and how you have given us uh, brothers and sisters in Christ to come alongside of, to hold us accountable, to go before the throne of God together, that we would be a, a body of believers that are, are set apart for you. We pray that that would be true of this local church, of Orchard Hills Bible Church, that we would be uh, a unified group of people that would be uh, holy as unto the Lord, that we would set aside any pride, any uh, selfish ambition that we have, but that we would seek only to, to honor you, to lift up your name, and to glorify you. We pray these things in your holy name. Amen. All right, so again, we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. That's just where we're starting. We're, we're launching off, and I want to 
take a look at the the third letter that Paul mentioned. So again, we have 1 Corinthians as the second letter. Uh, there was a letter that came before that that we don't have. 2 Corinthians is the fourth letter that we have. And in that letter, he references uh, another letter that came before that. So if you will, read with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 and 9. And Paul says here, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, again, that's the third letter that we don't have, he says, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice that you were made sorrowful, but not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. So apparently in this third letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he was, he was a little bit harsh. He was pretty blunt with them, and he pointed out some of their sin, some of their issues, and he calls this uh, a sorrowful letter that he had to, to write to them. Um, and he says in verse 9 that most of them were repentant, that this was a, a good sorrowful letter. It didn't make them ultimately sad, but it was a, a sorrowful letter that led to repentance. However, it doesn't seem that that was the case across the board for all the Corinthians. Glance back up with me, if you will, at verse 2, where he says, Make room for us in your hearts. We wronged no one. We corrupted no one. We took advantage of no one, which it seems like he is trying to compel them to, to believe, to embrace. Some of them are still thinking that he may have tried to wrong, corrupt, and take advantage of them. Verse 3, he says, I do not speak to condemn you, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. So they're definitely within the heart of, of Paul, that he loves them, he has this burden, this passion for them, and he is appealing to them here in uh, chapter 7, verse 2, that they also might find place in their heart for Paul as well. Now, with that little bit of background, let's turn forward to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And here in this chapter, we're going to see that there are three different parties that are at play, three different groups of people. First of all, of course, there is Paul. He says right from the beginning, now I, Paul. Uh, he is the author, but we'll see throughout this letter, or throughout this chapter rather, that he speaks in uh, first person plural at times. He talks about we and us. We know that Timothy was part of writing this letter, that he was there, he was involved with the, the writing of the letter to the church at Corinth, but it would be best to understand those plural references as Paul speaking on behalf of the other apostles. Uh, when he says we and us, he is talking about all the apostles. The second group that we see is when he speaks in the second person, when he says you, and obviously there he's just speaking to the Corinthians, the majority of which... Uh, are believing, repentant uh, Christians who are seeking to honor God. As we just looked at, there are a remnant who seem to be on the fence. And Paul is trying to sway them to his side, trying to get them to believe in, and accept him. But there's also a third group here in this chapter that we want to look at. And Paul refers to them in the third person. He talks about them and they when he's talking about this group. And this group are a, a group of people who are competing for Paul's authority. This is a group of false teachers who want to come along, they want to slander Paul, they want to steal the influence that Paul has 
uh, gained amongst the Corinthian believers and, and still that, gain that influence for themselves. We can see this group if we look down at verse 10 of chapter 10. And Paul says here, For they say that his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech is contemptible. That's not a very nice thing to say about Paul, is it? They're not trying to pat him on the back. That's not a compliment. Um, and Paul is coming up against these false teachers who are trying to uh, build up their own influence amongst the Corinthians and slander Paul so that he doesn't have the same kind of influence that he has historically had amongst these Corinthians. These Corinthians that he has loved, he lived with for a year and a half. These Corinthians that he is now writing his fourth letter to. And these other people are coming along and they are slandering him. They're uh, trash-talking Paul so that they can gain influence themselves. They are puffing up themselves with pride, aren't they? Uh, well, let's uh, take a a look at these, uh, this chapter. Now that we have these three groups in mind, Paul himself, the Corinthians that he's writing to, and then this third group, these wolves in sheep's clothing. Let's start back at the beginning and see how Paul introduces this chapter, which is really uh, a new section in this letter of 2 Corinthians. So we're jumping in at a good point where Paul is transitioning, so to speak. And he starts off with a, a plea, with an appeal and he pleased with these Corinthians. He says, Now I, Paul, myself urge you by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. So knowing what we know about this group, he's coming along and they're slandering Paul. And they're uh, boasting up themselves, talking about their own pride, and talking about how Paul shows up and he is really unimpressive in his appearance, how he talks a big game through letters, but he's not really impressive in person. And Paul his first uh, approach when writing about this group is to appeal to the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. He says, I, Paul, I, I want to plead with you guys. I want to urge you guys to, to do something. But first, let me appeal to Christ and his absolute meekness. We do know that Jesus is the epitome of what it means to be meek and, and mild and humble, don't we? Uh, one of the, the most comforting passages in all of Scripture, in Matthew chapter 11, where Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weak and, and heavy laden. I will give you rest. I am gentle and lowly of heart. Learn from me. Uh, take my yoke upon you, because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That is the Jesus, the Lord of the universe, who Paul is appealing to. He says, I urge you by, by this man, by this meek and gentle Jesus Christ, and uh, that's, that's definitely true about Christ. But we do see, uh, carrying on, that Paul gets maybe a little bit sarcastic with the Corinthians here. He says, I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold towards you when absent. So, again, we can see a, a little bit of a sarcastic tone from Paul here saying, yeah, I've I've heard the rumors. I know what you guys are saying about me that, yeah, I'm, I'm strong and weighty when I write to you, but when I'm in person, not so much. And again, that's not meant as a compliment. It's not meant to flatter Paul. But Paul really seems to, to own it. He doesn't fight that, that thought. He doesn't fight that, uh, that painting that, that people are, are painting of him too much. In fact, he rather appeals to Christ and his meekness. The, the very Christ who, though he is meek, he himself could be quite bold at times, couldn't he? 
Uh, I think Paul is trying to paint the picture that, that meekness is not a bad word, that it's okay to be meek. And he, uh, he embraces that to a point. And in verse 2, we see that he does the opposite as well. He says, I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I purpose, with which I propose to be courageous against some. So here he fully admits to being bold and courageous with others when he is talking with other people. So he is uh, presenting the fact that it's okay to have different approaches with different people, that different situations and different circumstances call for various approaches, that there is a time to be bold, there is a time to be firm, there is a time to be corrective. But again, we see that here he is pleading with the Corinthians. In verse 1, he said, I urge you. And then here in verse 2, he says, I ask that when I am present, I don't need to be bold and courageous with you. I've been that way with other people, but I don't want to be that way with you. I want to come with a, a, a gentleness about me. He is pleading for receptive hearts from the Corinthians so that when he does come to them, he doesn't have to be bold when he visits. He wants it to be a, a pleasant visit without the, the presence of a rebuke having to be there. Not that he is scared to rebuke people. We know that about Paul. We saw that in his last letter to them. Uh, it is necessary at times to rebuke, but it's not fun. And Paul doesn't want to uh, engage in that rebuking with them if he doesn't have to. So he's writing this letter to them ahead of time to hopefully curb that a little bit that he may show up and they can have more of a, a pleasant reunion than one that requires a, a bold rebuke. And in verses 3 and 4, we see that Paul here begins to identify the battleground that, that he's entering in. This is a, a spiritual battleground that Paul is uh, realizing is, is taking place here. He says in verse 3, For though we walk in the flesh, well, hold on, Go, going back to the end of verse 2, um, he says that he had to be courageous and bold with those other people because they were saying that he was walking in the flesh. They were ascribing to him uh, a sense of immorality. That's what they meant by walking in the flesh, walking according to the flesh. You guys, you're just living like the world. That's what they were saying about Paul. And in the beginning of verse 3, he says, yeah, we, we do walk according to the flesh. He's not here admitting to immorality in the sense that they meant him, but he's saying we walk according to the flesh in a physical sense, in a, a, a real sense that he has a body, right? And he lives amid, amongst uh, people with a, a body in a physical realm. So he's not admitting to immorality, but he's saying, yeah, we, we have a body and this is the world that we live in. So he says, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. So again, Paul wants peace. He doesn't want to fight, but he says that he's prepared to fight. And he relays that message to them. He says, if you guys want to throw down, I'll throw down. If you guys want to go to war, I got my sword right here, right? I'm ready to, to go to war. But know this, that my sword, it's not like your sword. My sword isn't of the world. My sword is of divine power, he says. My sword has supernatural ability. My sword is breathed out by God. So if you guys really want to go to war, we can go to war. But know that I'm fighting with, with different weapons from what you are fighting with. I'm fighting with divinely powerful, uh, supernatural weapons. 
Paul reminds them of the, <clears throat> the nature of this battle, that it's not a physical battle, but it's a spiritual battle that they are engaged in. We see this in Paul's other writing in Ephesians 6, where he says that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against people, not the same kind of war that we know of, but our struggle is against uh, thrones and powers and rulers and authorities and uh, spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. That's where our war takes place. And that's where this battle that he's about to uh, roll out and explain to them takes place. This is a, a section where Paul is talking about spiritual warfare and what it means to be in battle with those who are engaging in this spiritual warfare. And these divinely powerful weapons that he references here in verse 4, they are for the destruction of fortresses, he says. Well, these fortresses, they aren't physical fortresses either. Just as it's a spiritual warfare, these fortresses are, are spiritual fortresses. He's not talking about uh, going in with uh, guns ablazing into different army barracks and, and sieging cities. He's talking about spiritual forces um, that... He wants to come up against. And in this chapter, primarily, Paul has his crosshairs aimed at this third group of people that we introduced, the, the they and the thems, these false teachers who have come into Corinth. They are seeking to build up themselves and to slander Paul's name. He's speaking about uh, pride coming into the church from outside of the church. And so let's go ahead and skip on down in our passage real quick, and let's pick up in verse 12 and look at verse 12, as Paul addresses these uh, false teachers who are bringing this pride into the church. In verse 12, Paul says, For we are not bold to class or to compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves. But when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. So, <laughs> this group of people, the it, Paul is speaking to those who consider themselves superior in speech. And they are measuring Paul's authority by his physical ability. Again, saying he's not that impressive when he shows up. These are people who are um, exalting the, the physical characteristics that are, uh, that are exemplified when in person. They are... Uh, exalting charisma and oratory skills and uh, worldly wisdom. They're exalting pomp and bravado, and they're saying, we have that, and Paul doesn't. Paul shows up, and he's, he's unimpressive. His words in his letters, they're definitely impressive, but he shows up, and, and it's not the same. But look to us, because we have that. We have that, that bravado. We can uh, fulfill that, that desire for uh, a charismatic leader, somebody who can get up and command a room. And Paul responds, first off, to these proud and puffed up people by saying that he's not going to play that game. He's not going to measure himself by the same measure, by the same standard that they're measuring themselves by. He says, we are not so bold. He says, I don't even dare. We won't endure that. We're not going to put up with that kind of comparison. It's not a game that Paul is willing to play. Uh, Again, we can see a, a little bit of sarcasm here from Paul. I like how the, the New Living paraphrases verse 12. It says, Oh, don't worry. We wouldn't dare to say that we are as wonderful as these other men who tell us how important they are. That's kind of the, the attitude that Paul is uh, putting off here. We wouldn't 
seek to, to compare ourselves with them. Uh, but in reality, he's saying we're not going to stoop to that level. We're not going to use the same standard that they're using. Paul's saying, I'm, I'm not going to answer the fool according to his folly, lest I be like him and, and stoop to that level. I'm not going to stoop to that level. However, he says, I will answer him according to his folly. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to poke holes in his argument. I'm going to poke holes in his worldview, lest he appear wise in his own eyes. This is Paul applying the, the twofold apologetic approach. The twofold apologetic approach. And we see this approach in Proverbs chapter 26, verses 4 and 5. This is uh, a passage that is, at first glance, a little bit confusing, but we can make sense of it if we apply it to apologetics. So let's throw that up on the screen. Proverbs 26, 4 and 5 says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will also be like him. Then the very next verse goes on to say, Answer a fool as his folly deserves, that he not be wise in his own eyes. So Paul, again, is employing this tactic. He's saying, I'm not going to stoop to his level. I'm not going to answer him according to the standard that he has set up. Instead, I'm going to turn that standard back around on him. I'm going to step into his worldview and show him why that is, is foolishness, why it doesn't make sense. He says at the end of verse 12 that they are without understanding. It just doesn't add up. Jesus uh, talks about the, the wise man who builds his house upon a rock. He says, if somebody is truly wise and understanding and they want to build a house, they're going to make sure that it is sitting on a firm foundation like a rock. They're going to make sure that they have a worldview that can withhold what they, they propose to put upon it. But he says, the foolish man, he's the one who comes along and he builds this house upon sand. And Paul here is saying, I'm not going to answer you according to your standard. That's, that's foolishness. You guys are like, foolish men who build your house upon a sand. Instead, I'm going to step into this worldview and I'm going to show you that what you are doing makes absolutely no sense. Again, look at verse 12, the second part of verse 12. He says, we're not going to compare ourselves with you guys because what you are doing is you are commending yourselves. They are commending themselves. And when they measure themselves by themselves, they compare themselves with themselves. So what they are doing is they are establishing the rules. They are establishing uh, the, the measuring rod, the rule, the standard by which they are to be judged. And then they are applying that standard to themselves and they're judging everybody else by that same standard after declaring themselves to be in line with that standard that they had just imposed upon themselves. It's utter foolishness. It, it doesn't make sense. It's circular reasoning, right? They are self-authenticating. They are like the, the group that comes in and they do an internal review on themselves. Like, so what? Uh, have somebody else come out and you need to apply an outside standard to yourselves. You guys don't get to make the standard and then declare that you somehow are in line with this standard. Uh, you are without understanding when you are doing that. In this same proud, puffed up, self-authenticating self-authenticating attitude is absolutely pervasive in our world today, isn't it? We have all kinds of people who are setting the standards for themselves. They're saying, this is what truth is. This is how we ought to live. This is what is right. This is what is wrong. And then they're looking at that and they're saying, yeah, I, I, I measure up to that. I, I line up with that standard that I have just imposed upon myself. And it's utter foolishness. It really is. 
It is without understanding. And this mentality is infiltrating our church. It truly is. Whether we realize it or not, we need to be on guard against uh, this proud, puffed up, self-authenticating attitude that is coming into our church. We need to know how to defend against these attacks from outside of the church. And so if we look back up into verse 4, and we consider these divinely powerful weapons that we have uh, for the destruction of these fortresses, which again, they are not physical fortresses, right? They're not buildings. They're not uh, different army uh, cities or whatever, but they're spiritual fortresses. Um, If we look at what these spiritual fortresses are, we have the answer in the very next verse, in verse 5, where Paul says, we are destroying speculations. And the word for speculations here refers to ideas or to philosophies, to opinions, to theories or, or ideologies that come up against the church. Again, they're not physical speculations, um, just like they're not physical fortresses, but they are spiritual speculations, spiritual fortresses, spiritual ideologies that are against the church, that the church needs to be aware of because they are coming up against God. They are anti-God ideologies that we need to be aware of because they are entering our church. And in these next few verses, verses 5 and 6, Paul specifically cites three different ways that he's engaging in this spiritual battle, in three different ways that you and I, as the body of Christ, we can and should engage in this same spiritual battle. And first off, in the first part of verse 5, he says uh, that we need to engage in the spiritual battle by confronting pride and error. We need to be confronting pride and error. He says that we are destroying these speculations and every lofty thing, every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God. You have to be proud to raise up something against the knowledge of God and say, I know better than the almighty God of the universe. And Paul sees that going on outside of the church. And he says, we need to, we need to destroy that. We need to come up against that. We need to put on these divinely powerful weapons of warfare that we have and come up against that uh, foolishness that's questioning God and his knowledge. So first off, we see that this needs to be identified. Before it can be attacked and destroyed, it needs to be identified. We must be on guard against these godless philosophies that are infiltrating our church. This includes uh, physical uh, not physical, it includes uh, religious philosophies, different sects and uh, different uh, cults and religious-based heresies, which add to Scripture or take away from Scripture. They deny the fundamentals of the Christian faith and deny facts like the fact that Christ is God in the flesh. They deny the deity of Christ. They deny justification by faith alone. This also includes secular worldviews. In addition to religious faith-based cults and heresies, it includes secular worldviews or evolutionary theories or uh, philosophical naturalism. Again, these anti-God, God-denying paradigms that come up against the church. They need to be identified and destroyed. When somebody claims that, yeah, we can have... uh, we can have Christianity, but we also need to take into account the, the quote-unquote fact that 
uh, we've been here for, for billions of years and we just slowly evolved from single cell organisms or people want to uh, try to, again, blend these different theories and say, well, yeah, the Bible might say that this is the, the state that God had for, for men and women. This, uh, these are the gender roles that God has established for men and women, but that's an, an ancient book. We live in 2022, right? And so we have a, a better understanding of these gender roles. Those philosophies, those speculations, they need to be first off identified and then destroyed. Again, we see Paul's uh, language here is just filled with war type analogies that we need to come up and destroy these lofty things, these proud things that have been raised up against our God to first realize and identify that ideology that comes against my God and what he has said, what he has proclaimed, the truth of his word. And we need to establish uh, a front against that. We need to war against that. And we ask ourselves how it is that we come up against those philosophical ideologies, those speculations. And we need to do so the same way that Paul did by employing the twofold apologetic approach by stepping into their worldview and poking holes in it and saying, well, this is what's wrong with your understanding. You're actually borrowing from the Christian worldview and pointing out the fact that it is inconsistent, that it's illogical, and then pointing them to Christ and to the superior uh, understanding and foundation that Christ himself provides. Secondly, second way that we see that Paul is engaging the spiritual battle is by submitting every thought to the obedience of Christ. So he's stepping in, he's destroying these speculations, and then he is submitting every thought to the obedience of Christ, to, to take it captive. And the word, therefore, for taking it captive literally means to take captive with a spear. Um, again, they're engaging in spiritual warfare. They know that, and they're confronting it proactively on their own. Uh, and the fact that they are taking every thought captive suggests that they are not only taking the thoughts, these worldly wrong thoughts captive, but they're subjecting their own thoughts captive uh, to Christ as well. They are first setting apart Christ as Lord of their heart, Lord in their life, and then they are confronting the, the philosophical ideologies that come up against Christ as well. Most of you guys know that uh, Pastor Jeremy has gone this week. He's been on vacation for this past week, but uh, he's supposed to be resting, right? Supposed to be taking a break. However, he realizes that this spiritual warfare, it's an ongoing thing. It's a continual reality. And so even though you thought that you wouldn't get to hear from him this week, he dropped a, a pearl of wisdom on Facebook that I want to share with you guys if you guys happen to miss it. He said this. He said, the atheistic argument is that given enough time, nothing transforms into something. Order emerges from chaos and there is no meaning or purpose in life. That's what the atheist says. Christian don't be scared to challenge this worldview and don't let the atheist make it any more complicated than this. It really is that simple and it's utter foolishness. Like Paul said, they are without understanding. It doesn't make sense. And we as ambassadors of Christ, we need to be willing to rise up and to point out that foolishness to take every, cap, every thought captive and submit it to the obedience of Christ, first our own, and then to point other people and say, that doesn't make sense. You need to bow the knee and submit to Christ because uh, that is utter foolishness. It is without understanding. Thirdly, the third way that Paul engages in the spiritual battle 
uh, in verse 6, we see that they are prepared to confront and to punish all disobedience. They're prepared to confront and punish all disobedience. Again, even though it's not fun to punish, uh, Paul is ready and prepared to do it. And he is here appealing to their obedience, just as he has done throughout this whole letter, throughout um, all of his interactions with them. Paul wants them to be obedient with them. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. And here we see a, a purpose statement of sorts from Paul. He says, For to this end also I wrote, so that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. That is Paul's desire. That is Paul's concern for their obedience. That is the tone of this whole letter, that he is commending them for being obedient when they are obedient. And he is correcting them when they are obedient and appealing to them and pleading with them that they would, in fact, bow the knee and become obedient to Christ. So we see there uh, Paul's approach to pride that is outside of the church. But we realize that there is also pride that comes from within the church as well. So let's take a look at the pride that comes within the church. And let's look, first of all, at verse 7. And we see here that Paul is, again, calling them out again a little bit. He's not referring here to the third group, to the false teachers, but now he's, uh, he has his guns aimed at the Corinthians. And he says, you are looking at things as they are outwardly. Well, that's the very thing that this other group was doing, right? They were looking at Paul and his outward appearance, and uh, apparently they were influencing the Corinthians somewhat in doing the same thing, that the Corinthians were falling to outside influences. They had caved to the, the proud council from outside of the church who said, you need to look at the outward appearances. The Corinthians were doing that very thing. And even though they were influenced by somebody else, even though uh, the, the source of that pride came from outside of the church. These Corinthians, they were responsible themselves for uh, turning aside, for looking at the outward appearances rather than where they ought to look. Again, Paul had been with them for a year and a half, pouring into them, teaching them. Uh, aside from the, the two letters that we don't have, we see in 1 Corinthians that Paul over and over again was trying to prepare them, trying to warn them so they could stand firm against such foolishness. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, we see Paul addressing this, this matter of uh, what we ought to be looking for, what the Corinthians ought to be looking for. He said, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no division among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. That was a, a theme, if you remember, throughout the whole book of 1 Corinthians, that they were divided. Paul is telling them, don't be divided. Don't look at the outward things. Uh, don't divide yourself into groups and factions, but be united in Christ. Further down in that same chapter, starting in verse 27, he says, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are outwardly strong, right? And the base things of the world to despise and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. He's told them, he's warned them, don't be looking at the outward things. Don't be looking at the things that man looks at. Don't be divided amongst yourselves by these outward appearances, but realize that God wants you to be unified 
in uh, truth, not in outward truth. And then very specifically in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, Paul talks about uh, his approach to their their wrong-minded thinking about looking at how people portray themselves, about looking for these great philosophers, for these great uh, rhetoricians. Um, And he says here, starting in verse 1 of chapter 2, that when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. So again, he's kind of embracing that. Yeah, I came to you in, in weakness. I didn't come to you with that same boldness that I write to you with. Verse 2, he says, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but upon the power of God. And just as the, the Corinthians failed to heed Paul's warnings as they failed to uh, be united in truth. And they were, in fact, looking at outward appearances. They were falling to outside influences. You and I, too, we have this propensity to fall to these outside influences, to these outside philosophical ideologies that are anti-God, that are coming up against us. And I don't want us to think about the church as four walls, right? The church isn't a building, but you are the church. And as you go out into the world, we are constantly bombarded with these speculations, with these philosophies, with these ideologies that come up against God. And we need to beware that we don't fall to these outside influences, but that we stand and be set apart as the church of Christ. Back in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, we see that Paul is still not pleading only his apostleship, which he is doing throughout this whole letter, having to plead that he is an apostle. Uh, But he's also having to plead now his shared position in Christ. He's having to defend the fact that he is a Christian, which is ridiculous if you actually think about it for half a second. Uh, Verse 7, he says, You are looking at things as they are outwardly. If anyone is confident in himself that he is Christ, let him consider this again within himself, that just as he is Christ, so also are we. And Paul is saying, don't be so proud as to write us off as being outside of the kingdom. Uh, we are within the kingdom of Christ. And again, we've been talking about this a lot in Romans 14, about how we are not to be drawing lines where we shouldn't be drawing lines. How uh, we shouldn't be making a law where there is no law how we're adding to the word of God. This really is causing division within the church of Christ. Paul here is trying to warn the Corinthians about uh, an outbreak of a a civil war. Don't be making divisions amongst yourselves that ought not to be made. And again, this happens way too often in our churches today where we are making divisions in primary doctrines um, and secondary doctrines that, that ought not to be made where, um, especially in the, the realm of the doctrines of grace, right? I, I love the doctrines of grace. That's something that um, gives me joy and really makes me happy to realize that that is our God. But I've had people ask me on multiple occasions, have you been born again, again, in, in reference to the doctrines of grace? Are, are you a Calvinist? Have you been born again, again? And I just hate that, that wording. I think it's so 
uh, petty and, and wrong. The understanding um, is, is not there. That somebody who does truly understand the fact that they are utterly and totally depraved, that they understand that despite their utter depravity, God has sovereignly chosen them to be a part of his kingdom. And they go around and um, they are writing people out of the kingdom, saying that they haven't been born again again. Um, that's, that's not okay. We ought not to make divisions where God doesn't make divisions. Again, we see this same issue with modes of baptism, where we'll look at somebody else who chooses to baptize differently. They have a different understanding of baptism, and we'll say, they must not be a Christian. We write them out of the kingdom, just like the Corinthians were writing Paul himself out of the kingdom. He's saying, we're in Christ just as much as you are in Christ. Uh, we do this with understanding of miraculous sign gifts. We here don't hold to uh, speaking in tongues, miraculous healings, but that doesn't mean that there can't be somebody who does who is within the church. We ought not to make a law where there is no law. Christ's church is indeed diverse, and we should not be so proud as to draw those lines where God has not drawn those lines for us. We see that they went even beyond questioning Paul's salvation, but in doubting Paul's apostleship, they were questioning the authority of God himself. Look with me at verse 8. He says, For even if I boast something further about our authority, which the Lord gave... The Lord is the one who gave that authority to Paul. And they were questioning God's authority himself, um, which is terribly dangerous territory to be questioning God. And notice in the, the rest of this verse, Paul's heart. I just love Paul's heart. He was such a, such a shepherd. He says, God gave us this authority for building you up and not for destroying you. I will not be put to shame. He says, we're not here to destroy you. That's not my intention. That's not what I want to do. But I'm here to, to build you up. I'm here to pour into you, to edify you. That was Paul's heart all along. And we see in verse 9, he says, For I do not wish to seem as if I would terrify you by my letters. That's what these other people seem to be uh, saying about Paul. That Well, he just wants to, to scare you. He just wants to terrify you. They're painting Paul as this abusive and intimidating man, uh, this epitome of toxic masculinity who's just throwing his weight around, telling them what they have to do. And Paul's saying, that's not it at all. I care about you guys. I want to, to build you up. I don't want to destroy you. I'm not here to, to terrify you. Uh, Paul had a complete love for these people. And it totally is the, the propensity of humanity to uh, shun those who care about us and love us most, that we will turn away from those who have this, this true legitimate love for us and underappreciate those um, who, who love us the most. We've been on this, this kick in my household recently where uh, we watched Judge Judy. Judge Judy is still around, which is kind of crazy. She's been doing her thing for 25 years. She's still at it. Uh, I grew up watching Judge Judy, and we're watching it with our boys, and just it's sad how often you see family members take each other to court. There's a, a parent who's suing their own kid or a kid who's suing their own parent or suing their sibling. And that happens far more often than I would think that it ought to happen. Um, and one recent episode, Judge Judy was looking at this, this gal and she said, well, look to your left and look to your right. And uh, she had this kind of deadbeat boyfriend to her, her right. And 
uh, she said, yeah, he's, he's not going to be there for you in 20 years. But your mom, who you're taking to court for like $1,000, she's still going to be there in 20 years. Uh, and that's what these Corinthians were doing with Paul. Paul truly loved them. He poured himself into them. And uh, they're thinking, oh, he, he has it out for us. He wants us to be terrified. He wants to destroy us. We better follow these other people who are better spoken instead of Paul. Uh, it's utter foolishness. Uh, Proverbs 27 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, and deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Paul was being faithful in pointing out what they needed to do, but he was doing it in loving and gracious way. Uh, verses 10 and 11 says, For they say, His letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when absent, such persons we are also indeed when present. Paul here is trying to reconcile his physical tone with his written tone. Uh, He's serious, but he's still loving at the same time. And he tells them, let such a person consider this. Listen up, you, you boneheads. It's the same person talking to you when I'm in person as when I'm writing to you. Don't mistake kindness for, for weakness or grace and patience for error just because this other group is, is louder and they pride themselves on their rhetoric doesn't mean that what they're doing is speaking truth. I'm here to speak truth to you, whether it's in, in person or whether he is writing to them. Uh, these Corinthians, for whatever reason, just the culture that they lived in, they seem to value uh, a harsh tone. And our culture is, is kind of the opposite. We seem to value uh, a soft tone. We need to learn to value both grace and truth, uh, both a, a firm and a direct corrective tone that comes from love, as well as a, a gentle, meek, informal, brotherly love. We need to learn to, to balance and appreciate both of those. And we certainly ought not to be too proud to accept correction uh, in the church. No matter who we are or, or where we're at, we need to be humble enough to accept correction when confronted with a need to be corrected. Uh, oftentimes this can be more difficult for for older people. It can be more difficult with, with age or with experience, more difficult for those who um, have experienced longevity in something. If um, you think about a time when maybe you were working and you were confronted by the new guy, nobody wants to listen to the new guy. Nobody wants to have the new guy tell him how to do something. You already know how to do something, right? Uh, I remember even when I was younger, I had spent 15 years or so at the church that I had grown up in. And then we had somebody new come, and I was territorial towards them. I was off-putting towards them. I thought, well, this is, this is my church. I, I grew up here. I know this church. Don't come in here and tell me what to do. And that was a sinful, proud uh, attitude that was really rooted in my, my perceived experience or my perceived longevity there. So we need to be willing to accept correction. Um, this can be especially true of those who are in any type of leadership position, any type of Sunday school teacher or pastor or deacon. I think people oftentimes look at somebody who's in such a position and think that they are insulated or they are immune to pride when, in fact, it's uh, 
quite the opposite, that those who have been given position are more susceptible to pride. We need to guard ourselves against these things. And if you uh, at any point have developed a mentality of mastery over a, a besetting sin, over a particular sin, you especially need to watch out. If you think, I've achieved uh, a mastery over this sin. I, that's something that I used to struggle with. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Uh, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before stumbling. We need to watch out. We need to be on guard. Let us not be too proud to accept correction. Let us learn from the Corinthians uh, and be humble in spirit. And while I initially wanted to make it all the way through the chapter, that's definitely not going to happen. I do want to, however, uh, direct your eyes down to verse 17, where Paul is wrapping up this section. He says, but he who boasts is to boast in the Lord. And there he is quoting from Jeremiah. I want to read Jeremiah for you. Jeremiah says in chapter 9, verse 23, he says, Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not a rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, For I delight in these things, says the Lord. Pride is absolutely pervasive in our culture today. It is destructive, both within the church and outside of the church. We as Christians need to be vigilant. We need to be on guard, willing to confront God-denying pride and taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, not only in our own hearts, but in the hearts of those who are are rising up and speaking against our God and the truth that he has. Let us uh, pick up our weapons of warfare, these divinely powerful weapons, as we uh, approach and uh, defend against these destructive forces, against these destroying speculations that are attacking our church. Let's pray. God, we do pray that as we engage in this spiritual warfare, as we engage in the spiritual battle, that you would enable us to stand strong, that we would stand upon the truth of your word, that we would pick that up as our swords as we seek to fight faithfully in this battle. God, we pray against pride in this church. We pray that you would give us wisdom to stand up against the, the foolish ideologies that we are constantly bombarded with on a daily basis. Help us to identify truth from error. Help us to submit to you. Help us to submit every thought of our own to you and to your obedience, and then to go the extra step and to submit every thought, uh, to take it captive and not to allow the world to establish the rules, not to allow them to establish their own standard of of measuring rod or uh, what we should be measured up against, but to Submit that to your truth. God, I pray for this church. Help us to be unified. Help us to uh, please you in everything we think, say, and do. Pray this in your name. Amen.